0: Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. It has been a heated and hectic election season around the world. From Brazil to Israel to here in the United States, this week's episode focuses on this month's Israeli and American elections and what impact they may have on one another. We start here at home, where razor thin margins left control of Congress still up in the air at the time of this recording. But as the votes continue to be counted, Mark Rodd, Capitol Hill correspondent for Jewish Insider, joined us to discuss some of the unexpected results and those that are still pending. Mark,
1: welcome to People of the Pod. Thank you so much for having me on. Really happy to be here. So let's begin
0: by talking about your takeaways from this week's election. Any trends or patterns worth noting?
1: I think this was certainly a much less encouraging result than Republicans had been hoping for. I think they'll be very disappointed by the outcome here. How that plays out over the course of the next two years as we start to look towards 2024 probably remains to be seen. But there are certainly some whisperings that have been going around in the past 24 hours or so that this will not necessarily be a positive result for former President Donald Trump, who has been hinting at plans to launch another campaign for 2024, will probably be a very encouraging result for Ron DeSantis, who has also hinted at 2024 plans and has been sort of confronted directly by uh, former President Donald Trump over the course of the past few days. As far as American Jews, this was an encouraging result in terms of Jewish representation in terms of candidates. If I'm not mistaken, I believe this is going to actually grow the number of Jews in Congress. And yeah, I mean, I think it it shows that Jews are still a very active part of the American electorate. When you're looking at somewhere like Pennsylvania, they elected a Jewish candidate in lieu of a candidate who had been accused of of having ties to anti-Semitic individuals and groups and factions of the party. So I think a a pretty clear repudiation in Pennsylvania of that sort of ideology. The other thing that I would say is that um, despite the losses that we saw for folks like Elaine Luria and Lee Zeldin, it was overall a pretty good night for Jewish candidates around the country. In terms of sitting candidates, you've got Susan Wilde and Alyssa Slotkin and Josh Gottheimer who won in competitive districts. And then there's a number of new Jewish members who are going to be incoming on both the Republican and Democratic sides. Um, on the Republican side, Max Miller, who's expected to win, um, is going to be joining the House on the Democratic side. Greg Landsman in Ohio, Seth Magaziner in Rhode Island, Daniel Goldman in New York, Becca Balint in Vermont, Jared Moskowitz in Florida. And as of when we're recording this, a gentleman named Adam Frisch is coming in very competitively with Lauren Boebert in Colorado. Still remains to be seen who's going to pull off a victory there, but I think he's turned out to be much less of a long shot than a lot of people had thought.
0: Let's organize this conversation a little bit and start with gubernatorial races. What were some of the more significant governor races and their significant outcomes?
1: Sure. One that I think a lot of the nation had their eye on last night was the race in Pennsylvania between Josh Shapiro and Doug Mastriano. Shapiro came away with a a fairly sizable victory there, which I think a lot of folks see as a real repudiation of some of Mastriano's politics of really sort of catering to the far right and catering to what some folks have described as sort of Christian nationalist and anti-Semitic elements of the far right. Down in Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis was largely expected to win, but came away with surprising victories in certain areas of the state, particularly the first Republican gubernatorial victory in the Miami-Dade area in quite a number of years. And so really solidifying and locking down Republican margins down there in Florida. Another race potentially of interest for the Jewish community would be Colorado. Um, Governor Jared Polis also had been expected to win, but Came away with, as well, a pretty sizable margin of victory. Hollis is Jewish and will likely be someone to watch alongside Shapiro going forward.
0: Kathy Hochul pulled out a pretty sizable victory in the New York area, even after Zeldin reached out to a large Hasidic population.
1: That's right. Despite sort of some last-minute momentum and and some last-minute attention on Zeldin's campaign, uh, Hochul did walk away with the victory here. You know, as far as exit polling goes, the exit polls have showed Hochul still walking away with the majority of the Jewish vote in New York. So I think there may have been a bit of expectations um, that were not met in terms of how much the Jewish vote would ultimately turn towards Zeldin in this race.
0: Is that because of Governor Hochul's response to some of the anti-Semitic incidents around New York? Is it because that vote perhaps was taken for granted by the Zeldin side and attention was paid too late? It's
1: hard to say again at this point, being so close out, but there definitely were concerted efforts by Hochul and other Democrats up and down the state, including President Biden, to reach out to some of these Hasidic communities as well, um, these are ultra-Orthodox communities and shore up Democratic support there. So let's move on to
0: congressional races. Uh, I want to start in Virginia, where Congresswoman Elaine Luria lost her bid for reelection. And really she was she was kind of seen as an up-and-coming Jewish voice, perhaps even you know, the the Jewish voice that would replace Ted Deutsch in Congress, AJC's new CEO. Again, any explanation as to why she was defeated?
1: Yeah, I was actually down in this district yesterday night for Election Day um, and throughout the day yesterday. So I was sort of was hearing a bit from folks on the ground talking to some Republican volunteers. There was a feeling that the economy and inflation were really driving factors that ultimately worked in favor of the Republican there, Jen Kiggins. There's also the redistricting situation put Luria on her back foot um, coming into this race, the district looks a little bit different than it did previously and in a way that set Luria sort of at a, in a very competitive race here and, you know, having a real fight on her hands.
0: So speaking of Ted Deutsch, I was looking at the 23rd congressional district in Florida. Jared Moskowitz was elected to fill that vacated seat. Do you anticipate any particular shift with now Congressman Moskowitz in that district?
1: In terms of Moskowitz's policies, in some interviews I did with him very early on in his campaign, he very much framed himself as kind of a natural successor to Ted Deutsch and as a close ally of Ted Deutsch. Um, said they're very much aligned on things like Israel policy and anti Semitism. And those are issues that Moskowitz has also been active on the state level in Florida, both as a member of the Florida state legislature. So these are issues that Moskowitz has been active on as a member of the Florida House of Representatives and as the Florida Director of Emergency Management. So in terms of their Israel policies, I would not expect, um, and their policies on anti-Semitism, I would not expect too much of a, a change there. Um, Moskowitz has really committed himself to picking up Ted Deutsch's torch on those issues and has said that he's going to follow on in the, the legacy that Representative Deutsch had set of being willing to stand up to members of his own party on these issues at times.
0: You're speaking of members of his own party, sometimes referred to as the squad. Did the squad suffer any losses, gain any newbies in this election cycle?
1: So no losses for the squad this cycle, but their gains were somewhat blunted during the Democratic primary process this year. A lot of the sort of farther left candidates who Had expressed some more skepticism of Israel, were defeated in their primaries, with one exception being Summer Lee in Pennsylvania. She managed to come through her primary, which was really one of the major losses, the only really major loss for some of the pro Israel groups that were involved in the Democratic primaries this year. And despite some last minute efforts to defeat her in the general election, She will be moving on to Congress. One other name that uh, may be joining sort of the squad-aligned faction is Greg Kassar in Texas, but he has expressed a more moderate position on Israel than a lot of his colleagues have and has expressed that he would be generally supportive of the U.S.-Israel relationship, which was actually a position that led the local Democratic Socialist chapter to disassociate from him during the Democratic primary.
0: So the other thing I wanted to ask you, or the the other state I wanted to focus on, is Georgia. We have Marjorie Taylor Greene winning by, I guess, a landslide is the right term there. And I'm just curious what your thoughts are on Marjorie Taylor Greene's renewed presence in Congress, especially amid a weaker Republican House than was expected. I mean, does this give Marjorie Taylor Greene a little bit more power? Are some of her Republican colleagues, is it possible that they will be trying to cater to her a bit more in order to secure her vote on issues that matter to them?
1: I think that, to speak broadly, a narrower majority in the House will certainly give more power to some of the farther right factions in the party. Marjorie Taylor Greene specifically, there had already been some discussions even predating these election results of her being given prominent roles, whether that be in Republican leadership or a role on the oversight committee she was seeking. Um, So there's been some reporting that there were already some efforts by House Republican leadership to cater to her. But I think that speaking broadly, last night's results, which it looks like are headed towards a smaller majority than Republicans had hoped for, will certainly give every member more of a voice. In terms of the far-right factions, there's been some reporting just recently today that members of the House Freedom Caucus, which Green is a member of, are potentially mounting a competitive leadership bid to Republican leader Kevin McCarthy, potentially in an effort to sort of secure some concessions from him in the way a Republican House would be run. Representative Thomas Massey, who has at times been a voice who's been contrary to the pro-Israel and the Jewish community on legislation relating to things like Iron Dome and anti-Semitism, has also said within, you know, last night and this morning, that he would feel emboldened by a smaller House Republican majority, which he feels would give him more power in that majority.
0: Certainly, the razor-thin margins of this week's election will kind of illustrate the very deep divide, maybe even a deeper divide than what we thought we faced in national politics. And I am curious if that deeper divide is going to elevate some tensions and perhaps elevates the risk of more anti-Semitism, more political violence in these months and years to come.
1: You know, I don't really want to speculate too much on that. I think that's, you know, that's a that's a very complicated question.
0: Does that deeper divide illustrate what we could expect or anticipate when it comes to U.S.-Israel relations?
1: As far as U.S.-Israel relations, I think the thing that I'm frankly watching most at this point is the Israeli government, because there have been some very prominent pro-Israel Democrats, specifically Senator Bob Menendez, who leads the Senate Foreign Relations Committee at the moment and would likely be the ranking member if Republicans take the Senate, and Congressman Brad Sherman in the House, they have both said that they would have deep concerns about working with and about um, having folks like um, Itamar Ben-Gavir in an Israeli administration, um, which it looks like they will be. So there may be some tension there between pro-Israel Democrats, and that Israeli administration. And then if you have a Republican House or a Republican Senate or a Republican House and Senate, they may use that as an opportunity to propose policies with regard to the U.S.-Israel relationship or other Middle East policy that might put the Biden administration or Democrats in an uncomfortable position and having to take some votes that they might prefer not to take.
0: Mark, thank you so much for for coming, answering our questions when there are still so many questions unanswered (laughs) and everything is still up in the air. But you have shined some light on some of the the victories and hopes, uh, things that we have to look forward to after this election. So thank you.
1: Thank you so much. Really appreciate
0: it. Now to Israel, where former and future Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu sailed to victory and is now assembling a coalition government that's quite a bit right of center because of the right-wing blocs that supported him. Here to discuss what that means for the Jewish state is Lahav Harkov, senior contributing editor at the Jerusalem Post. Lahav, we are so grateful you are here to explain what happened. I'm going to dive right in. After five elections in the last four years, an Israeli election has finally ended in a decisive victory— Netanyahu is once again prime minister, although the coalition negotiations are formally underway quite yet. But what happened to shift what was thought to be a very close election to such a clear victory?
2: There were some steps by the right that attracted more voters. And then there were some steps by the left that really messed things up for them. On the right, though, there was a real sense of grievance and like a strong motivation to get to the polls because they had lost the previous time. You know, like after four elections in which people sort of felt like especially after say like the first two, where people felt like, oh my God, this is just not going to change. We're stuck in this endless cycle. This time people on the right saw, oh, it did change. So they went out and voted and For a while now, Israel has been a majority right-wing country. I mean, when we talk about right and left in Israel, generally we're talking about the approach to the Palestinians and opposing land concessions, either entirely or mostly. So there's that. And there's the fact that there was a wave of terrorism in recent months, and that always helps the right, which is seen as tougher on terrorism. You know, and we could get into the real nitty gritty of it because there are sort of different things that attracted people to different parties, but overall, and on the left, first of all, the solid left, Merits and Labour parties, they have been in like sort of a death spasm for 20 years. Every election for the past 20 years, Merits has been on the verge of not getting into the Knesset and Labour has been in decline for the past, I would say, 23 years, really, since the election of 1999, with a couple of exceptions. And they were fairly recent exceptions, but still, overall, it's been a decline. So that continued very dramatically. And then La- Lapid, the departing prime minister now, he sort of proved to be bad at something that BB has always been good at, which is managing the block as, as a block. He needed the left to sort of line up behind him to support him and to maximize its votes. And there's a threshold in Israel where if a party gets less than 3.25% of the vote, it doesn't get into the Knesset. And one party in his bloc, which is Meretz, didn't get past the threshold. And then another party that is not exactly in his bloc because they don't join any government as a matter of policy, but they were anti-Bibi, And that's Balad, which is one of the Arab parties. They also didn't get in. So there were a lot of wasted votes. That being said, even if both of those parties got in, Netanyahu would have had a majority.
0: So what do you think the likelihood of Netanyahu actually finalizing a coalition agreement is?
2: It's very high. It's not like in other elections in this cycle where he was tied or he had like a one or two seat majority that he could play with. He now has a four seat majority. It gives him a lot of flexibility. And the four seat majority is just his block, the people who declared before the election that they support him. There is a chance at this point, because he won in such a solid way, that parties that are more to the center or parties that were right wing but opposed him will end up being willing to sit with him. I mean, there's a lot of talk about. Maybe there should be a unity government. Maybe people at the center should be with Netanyahu and his government in order to keep extremists out of the government. But either way, Netanyahu has options. He is in a very different situation than he has been in the last few years.
0: One of the blocs supporting Netanyahu is the three-party coalition Religious Zionists, which includes Otsma Yehudit, the far-right party. That party's leader pushed for granting immunity to soldiers accused of committing violent crimes against Palestinians. Some have said that mainstreaming such a party like this could endanger Israel's democracy. What are your thoughts on this?
2: Yeah, I mean, contrary to Netanyahu's reputation, I think, especially his reputation outside of Israel, he's very conservative, not in the sense of he's the extreme right, but very conservative in the sense that he doesn't tend to do drastic things or make extreme moves. It's hard for me to see him backing things like that. And so right now, in the coalition negotiations, they're not really asking for those things. though. I mean, those are in their policies, and I'm sure that they will try to promote it moving forward. But they're focused more on things like what jobs they'll have. There was a talk about wanting a sort of rollback of gay rights, and Netanyahu came back and said no. So I just think the deportations thing, especially, I just think that the system in Israel is such that everybody has to compromise, you have to work in coalitions. It's not like you know, if Trump has the white, I mean, now it's Biden, but if Trump has the White House in both houses of Congress, then in theory, it would be very easy for him to make sweeping changes. Like in Israel, you don't have the situation where you have the executive in both houses of Congress. And you also having the executive doesn't give you the power to make executive orders the way it does in the U.S. But anyway, those wouldn't be executive orders from Netanyahu anyway. I do think that, like, certainly the most extreme things that these parties are asking for, like, this is a system where people have to compromise, and I don't think that they're going to happen. That being said, what you mentioned about soldiers is very popular. That might have more of a chance, you know? If I were advising Netanyahu, though, I would point out to him that that makes Israel a lot more vulnerable to, you know, like international courts and things like that. Like at the moment, one of Israel's best defenses at the International Criminal Court, where unfortunately bad actors have decided to, you know, try to bring charges against Israel, is that we have a strong judicial system that does judge soldiers when they do something wrong.
0: So what kinds of maybe not sweeping changes, but significant changes can we expect to see after this coalition is formed?
2: So first of all, I don't know that we're going to see such sweeping changes because I don't think the government of the last year did that much to change that much, you know, like they were able to get small things done, but they had such a shaky coalition and the opposition was so motivated that they didn't make any sweeping changes. That being said, I think from the side of the Orthodox parties, the Haredi parties, they are looking for some sweeping changes that might get support from this broader sort of right-wing coalition, foremost of which they and every party in the BB block actually supports something called the override clause. So there exists, Israel has what's called basic laws. We don't have a constitution. We have a few laws that not actually like legislatively, it doesn't really say it in the law, but through sort of judicial precedent have been elevated into almost a constitution-like status. And one of them has a clause in it. It's it's freedom of occupation as an occupation, what your job is, not the other occupation. But it has a clause in it that says that if the Supreme Court cancels a law based on this law, so like they say, oh, you can't I mean the actual example is you can't ban people from raising pigs in Israel. This is like a real court case from the nineties, then the Knesset can come back and with a very large majority repass that law, even though the Supreme Court turned it down. So what this coalition really wants to do is broaden that to any law that's canceled by the Supreme Court, that if you have a special majority of the Knesset, they can still go forward with that law. And the reason the ultra-orthodox especially support that is that they want to be able to continue to be exempt from service in the army, which the courts have long said that they. Can't all be exempt. It can't be tens of thousands of 18 year olds who are exempt. If there's some sort of special case for a smaller number of them, fine, but there needs to be some sort of solution. And really, I mean, I've been covering Israeli politics for almost 12 years now, and this has been an ongoing issue. And no government, I mean, there have been governments who have passed laws, but then there's an election and that law is canceled. Like, it's not something that's been figured out. So I think that that's going to be a big thing. And then once that happens, there are other laws pertaining to, for example, how Israel treats illegal immigrants. That's really the big one. Certain things having to do with settlements that I think the Knesset would repass.
0: You said that Balat was out, they did not meet the threshold. Are there other Arab parties that will have a role in the Knesset this year or this term?
2: Yeah, two Arab parties passed the threshold the chance that they'll be in the coalition is, you know, <laughs> anything's possible, but it's basically none. One of them has never been in a coalition, refuses to be in coalitions. And then the other one, Ram, had been in the last coalition. And it was a very courageous move on the party leader's part in the sense that, I mean, it was just something that was not acceptable in Arab politics up until that point. It was considered sort of like, quote unquote, collaborating with the Zionists against the Palestinians, you know, and the leader of the party is Mansour Abbas. He said, no, we have constituents who have domestic concerns that are not being met because we're not willing to fully represent them. And so he actually joined the coalition. But certain figures on the right basically thought that it was a problem because he's not he's not a Zionist. He doesn't actually support Israel as a Jewish state, which is also like he came out and he said, like, Israel is a Jewish state. I'm not delusional. Like, I realize that that's the fact. I'm not here to, like, change that necessarily. But it was not good enough for these people. There was a sense of they're affiliated with the Muslim Brotherhood, which is, you know, the Muslim Brotherhood is often a problem for Israel and other countries. And, of course, Hamas being the Palestinian version of the Muslim Brotherhood. So I just think the chance that Netanyahu will bring them into any coalition is nil. And so they will have the role that they've had historically always, which is that they're in the opposition.
0: Okay. so does the Israeli left have any viable future at this point?
2: Like, I don't think that, like, you know, demographics is destiny. Then things like that, like it could change. Definitely. And I think that the reason that the right has been so ascendant for the past 20 years is that Israel has tried the left's like flagship solutions for problems with the Palestinians and they didn't go well, right? So it started with Oslo, which within days of Oslo being signed, there were bus bombings and the whole thing collapsed in 1999 when Ehud Barak offered 97% of the post 1967 land to the Palestinians and they said no. And it continued with the disengagement where Israel tried unilaterally to withdraw from land, right, with all of Gaza. And we got thousands of rockets being shot at us by Hamas. So Israelis are very skeptical about concessions just from their, you know, lived experience. That being said, I do think we see often in the, just in the election cycles of the past 10 years, to some extent, when the Orthodox parties are a little bit too strident in what they're demanding, there is a pushback. And it hasn't been enough of a pushback to really lose Netanyahu, his premiership, but it's possible. You don't know. And the the reason I said I don't believe demographics is destiny is because um, people on the right tend to have more kids. Orthodox people tend to have more kids. Traditional people tend to have more kids. Israel is the only Western country or Israel has the highest birth rate of any Western country, right? It's beyond the level of replacement. And a lot of that is thanks to Orthodox people. So, you know, in theory, but I think that making predictions based on demographics have long proven to be not the best sort of indicator politically.
0: By the way, what is the state of Netanyahu's criminal case? And could any shifts in that change the look of the government going forward?
2: Yeah, so Netanyahu is on trial and it's been going on for a while now. It's still going on. Unless he is convicted after appeal, then it has no political effect on him. The law initial allows him to be prime minister while he's on trial. And his partners, like the people who still support him, know that. I mean, they know he's on trial. That was sort of part of this reshuffling where there were some parties on like you recall them maybe the moderate right. I would say maybe the secular right, they drifted away from Netanyahu, in part because of the ongoing trial where they just felt it was inappropriate. But legally, he could keep going, even if he's convicted by the lower court. It's only if he's convicted by the Supreme Court.
0: And if that happens, or anything else for that matter, I mean, what is the likelihood of another election in the coming year? We've gotten so used to this being kind of an annual affair, but what is the likelihood of that continuing?
2: I think at this point, there's just such solid numbers that are behind Netanyahu that this will last a while. I mean, on average, Israeli governments last, I believe it's like 2.8 years. So, you know, (laughs) it's not such a long time, but I think it has a fair chance of lasting at least two years.
0: Two more questions. One is more of a kind of mechanical technical question. The polls were saying that this was going to be a neck and neck race, right? I mean, that it was going to be much closer than it actually was. Does the outcome have any consequence for polling in Israel? Is there going to be a discussion about that?
2: There's always a discussion about that, I would say. <laughs> I mean there's so many factors, right? You don't have one person running against another person. so the polls are always like there's always something that's off enough that people are like, oh, the polls are not good. I would say when we talk about it being neck and neck, I at least saw and I, I had written this that I saw this election as an election between Netanyahu and another election. When you look at the people who say yet your could have feasibly formed a coalition with, They weren't neck and neck with the people Netanyahu could have feasibly formed a coalition with. There were about four seats, possibly more, that were not going to be in any coalition. And so it's only neck and neck if you look at it as will Netanyahu have a government or there won't be any government and we'll go to another election. It wasn't really neck and neck between left and right.
0: My last question is just really open ended. I mean, is there anything that we haven't discussed here that you think is quite important for people, especially American Jews, to know about this election and its outcome?
2: From the responses I've been getting from the American Jews I've been talking about, they're like really worried about a wholesale sort of rollback of of rights and things like that, because this coalition has quite a few people on the far right. And I would say it's not going to get better in the sense of a lot of the things that the American Jews care about, like religion and state issues, what conversions are accepted, what's going to happen at the Western Wall. But. I think that the system works very well in Israel, and the idea that you have to have coalitions where people have to compromise and figure things out and work together works well in Israel, usually. And so don't panic. That's what I want to tell people. The system works. It's not the first time we've had extreme people. It's maybe different circumstances, different kinds of extreme people. But I I think that, you know, it just won't be so different from the way things were maybe three and a half years ago.
0: Well, thank you so much, Lahav. I really appreciate you kind of breaking this down for us.
2: Happy to be here.
0: If you missed last week's episode, don't forget to listen to our latest conversation with Jewish college basketball coach Bruce Pearl on why he took his Auburn University men's basketball team to Israel on a first-of-its-kind, birthright-for-college basketball trip. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is T.K. Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at ajc.org peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at People of the pod at ajc.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, And hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.